Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we're going to talk about traditions, change, and celebration, native artists of the Southeast. And my guests will be Doug Peach, who is coordinator of South Carolina Folklife at the Arts Commission and at McKissick Museum. Sadler Taylor, who is chief curator of folklife and fieldwork at McKissick Museum at USC. And Dr. Will Goins, who is CEO of the Eastern Cherokee Southern Iroquois United Tribes of South Carolina. I'll have that conversation about traditions, change, and celebrations of Native American art. But first, your NPR news break. With me in the SCANA studios today are Dr. Will Goins, who is the CEO of the Eastern Cherokee and Southern Iroquois United Tribes, Sadler Taylor, who is curator of folklife and fieldwork at McKissick Museum at USC, and Doug Peach, who is coordinator for South Carolina Folklife at the Arts Commission and at McKissick Museums. And gentlemen, we're here today to talk about an exhibit at McKissick, Traditions, Change, and Celebration, Native American Artists of the Southeast, but also about the whole question, particularly Dr. Goins, about the revitalization and recognition of Native Americans in South Carolina. So with that kind of lengthy introduction, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Good to be here. Dr. Goins, first, let's talk about your organization. If you could People would say Eastern Cherokee and Southern Iroquois. I know the difference or why the connection, but you might explain that for our listeners. Well, most people don't realize that uh, most Native American tribal communities do fall into historic language family groups. And the Cherokees actually are Southern Iroquois. We are the distant relatives and the Southern brothers of the well-known Iroquois Confederacy, which is the Onondaga, Cayuga, Mohawk, Seneca, Oneida, uh, from, of course, upstate New York and Canada. The Tuscarora, which were from the Carolinas, and the Cherokee were down here. But we're tied to them linguistically and culturally. And so we're both the Southern Iroquois down here. And there are lots of different Native American communities of the Southeast that are of Iroquois connection, like the Nottoway Indians of Virginia or the Meharan Indians of North Carolina. So we're just our, the southern relatives. We sort of have a slightly different dialect to our Iroquois language, and uh, it would be like a southern drawl. Okay. Sadler, let's talk about this exhibit at McKissick, Traditions, Change, and Celebration, Native American Artists of the Southeast, kind of your baby. You kind of put it together, right? You're the curator of it. Well, I'm. yes, that's correct. And I, I guess Will and I had an initial conversation about this probably, I don't know, Will, five, six years ago? Yeah, uh, it's right. been something that was brought up years ago and just because of other priorities and work schedules and whatnot, it's taken this long to really fit it into an exhibition schedule and get it get it off the ground. So um, we try to plan three or four years out at McKissick, so that's that's part of the, the process there. But, uh, yeah, Will and I really got together seriously about it uh, probably this time last year, and Will came on board for about six months and was... Uh, really important part of the the developmental process and uh, as the guest curator. All right. Well, Doug, let's talk about the name, Traditions, Change, and Celebration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also seen diverse voices <laughs> appear in some of the mm-hmm. publicity. So give us a little bit of background on that. Absolutely. Diverse Voices is a uh, folk life-specific exhibit that happens every year at McKissick. So right now uh, we're in Diverse Voices 1, uh, which is an overview of South Carolina folk life. Very soon we'll be transitioning into uh, Diverse Voices 2, which is traditions, change, and celebration, and then there'll be another Diverse Voices and so on and so on. Uh, In terms of traditions, change, and celebration, uh, I think it's important to recognize that traditions do change although these are things that uh, hold communities together and, and things that we, uh, we 
use to uh, identify ourselves and other people use to identify themselves, uh, these things do shift and, and alter with time. And celebration is, is uh, using these objects to uh, celebrate who we are and celebrate our similarities and our, and our differences. Let's talk about the exhibit because we're talking about a museum. We're talking about physical objects. And it says you've got them from private collections and museums. Will, what's in the exhibit that represents the Southern Iroquois? Quite a bit. Of course, the Iroquois people were very prominent in this state at one time. The Cherokees held the land west of the Broad River all the way to Georgia and Tennessee. But uh, most importantly for this exhibit, we're looking at it as, as a regional exhibit. So it's representative of about nine different states celebrating about 40 different tribal communities that are within those nine states. And because of limited space and time, we have about 25 different uh, tribes represented in uh, as far as the objects, the stories that are told, the, the artifacts that are presented, as well as um, the, the interaction between the larger Indian community, because we are a contemporary people, and people do migrate, and we have celebrations that are very contemporary, like uh, the powwow, which is a contemporary festival that's uh, that we do nowadays. It's probably only a hundred years old, but we have one feature of this exhibit that celebrates that, and so that's very intertribal and almost international, and with. Uh, the objects there will have artisans that are from other tribes that may be from the southwest, but they've migrated and they live in the southeast, and they also participate in this intertribal kind of gathering. So it's, it's very representative of about nine states regionally. And, and more importantly, it's the first exhibit at a major uh, university museum venue to incorporate and include all of the tribal communities of the Southeast. So this is the very first exhibit that I know of that actually is very inclusive and very representative of about 40 different tribal communities that are all located within those nine states. I can remember back when I was still at the university, Southern Studies pushed for hiring someone with the anthropology department to do Native American studies because we had, to begin with, a federally recognized nation or tribe in addition to uh, the state-recognized ones, and we thought it was something that that needed to be done. It, it finally came to fruition. Just about a year ago. Yeah, but we pushed for that for a while, and, and thankfully the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences thought it was important, mm-hmm. and she supported it. So I'm I'm delighted that, that it has finally come to fruition. And our organization was an advocate for that position as well, and it's good to have that person on board. And hopefully this, this exhibit will help to make uh, that position even more important to the university campus and to the state of South Carolina. And I'm happy to report that we're working with the anthropology department, and specifically Courtney Lewis, who took that position with uh, with this exhibit. So we're going to be showing a film with them called uh, A Cherokee Word for Water, which is a wonderful film about uh, the first woman uh, Cherokee chief uh, named Wilma Mankiller. Uh, and then we'll also be having kind of a more academic discussion uh, in, in conjunction with them called Power in Native Art with regional Native American scholars from throughout the Southeast. So, so you're going, this is more than just an exhibit. There's a, a, a associated public program series along with the exhibit. How does the folk art or the artwork in the exhibit, uh, Sadler, fit into this, as the English would say, oleo or melange or Give us some idea of, of what are the physical things that are going to be on display. Well, there's a, wi- a wide variety, and I, I think what sets this exhibit apart is that there's certainly been uh, exhibits focusing on Native American art, but it's been presented as an art exhibit. You know, the object will be essentially standalone. 
and I guess one of the best examples of that was 40 or 50 years ago when the Columbia Museum of Art did an exhibit on Catawba pottery, which brought really the attention to the world of mm-hmm. this is an incredible indigenous tradition. Certainly, and the, and the folks up at USC Lancaster do a wonderful job continuing to present that the material culture of the Catawba people. And it's not that these objects couldn't stand on their own as as art objects for their aesthetic value alone, but we've really tried to put it into a cultural and social context. Well, that's what fascinates me. So let's I assume you do have a Catawba pot on display? We do. We do. <laughs> but, you know, what I learned through this process was that a lot of people put these tribal groups in, in boxes and, well, this is Catawba pottery, this is Cherokee beadwork, and what I found in working with Will and just doing research on my own through this process is that, you know, we talked earlier about traditions changing and that, that sharing of cultures, and these tribal groups did not exist independently. You know, they, they communicated with folks just like uh, Europeans and African Americans. Uh, we were all talking to each other. That's no different with these different tribal groups. And so just because you're Cherokee, uh, background or your Cherokee doesn't mean that you don't pick up Choctaw traditions or Chickasaw traditions. And so in gathering up what I think is a f- very comprehensive group of artists, you know, you see that. You see Chickasaw potters that incorporate uh, symbology from uh, Southwest tribes. You see beadwork that reflects multiple tribal uh, influences. So it's been really fascinating for me to see the context of how this stuff has developed. Well, one of the things that USC's Institute for Archaeology and Anthropology has documented is that fire-tempered pottery began in the Savannah River in this country. I mean, that's pretty mm-hmm. significant. Yes, we associate fire-tempered pottery southwest particularly, but the origins of that in the Americas, unless you fellows want to contradict me, is I think it can be documented began in the Savannah River Valley. No, I think that's that's accepted within scholarly communities. The Edgefield District and Savannah River is kind of the birthplace of certainly alkaline glazed pottery in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, a lot of the Native American pottery traditions certainly precede that and are of a different type of process, whether it be coil pottery or uh, the way the Catawbas fire their pottery, and you know, at least traditionally in open, open fires. But so, okay. What's unique and and interesting about uh, the collection that will be presented is, you will be able to see uh, what Native American people are beginning to do with regard to their reinterpretation, the evolution of their own art, where we as Native people are reaching back even further on the uh, timeline to the Mississippian complex and the Clovis period for inspiration. So you'll find a revival kind of mode with regard to a lot of the pottery, a lot of the beadwork, where we're utilizing symbols that are on mounds that are 2,000 years old. So they, they're ancient, ancient symbols and and inspiration coming from our ancestors, the ancient ones, that we as contemporary Native artists are utilizing, re-employing them, and finding a value in the use of them as as we uh, take it out to to the, the mass culture. I think one of my favorite examples of that, what Will's saying, is the crown we have on exhibit, which is the Miss Indian World Crown, which is a piece of beaded work that has an American flag and a Canadian flag on it, but it's actually a beauty pageant crown. And it comes from where? It comes from the uh, Miss Indian World pageant, which is uh, one of the features or or centerpieces to the Gathering of Nations, which is an international, it's the largest powwow in the world, and it's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And interestingly enough, and and this is a, a great example uh, a Santa Clara Pueblo lady made the crown, but we in the southeast, because it's an international dignitary, which is um, 
given that title from all the nations in the Western Hemisphere. We have Native uh, women that come up from south of the border or from Central and South America. We have Native women that come from the First Nations people of Canada to be a part of this pageant, as well as the continental United States. And we've been blessed to have two young ladies from this particular region of the Southeast to gain that crown, to be um, representative not only of their culture, but of Indian women and the powwow for the entire Indian world. And uh, one of them is uh, a young lady that's from North Carolina, and she wore this crown in 1998. Every year that they do this pageant, they create a brand new beaded crown and a beaded sash for that particular year because it's denoted on the crown. And so we were uh, blessed to get Melanie Matthews uh, that runs that pageant to help us to exhibit it for the very first time ever in an exhibit of this nature, just representing that one young girl's ascent Mm -hmm. to that uh, wonderful position representing not only her tribe, but all of the tribes. Well, you talk about the powwow, and I guess since I'm a lot older than anybody else in the room, that term was, was, you know, used in the the old Western films. But Native Americans are using, it is a Native American term, correct? It comes from a Native American word. Uh, There's so much misinformation about the powwow. It is a contemporary festival that's just like I said, about a hundred years old, but the word comes from an Algonquin term, pom uh, pom, which was actually an individual, quite often considered a, a spiritual leader or dignitary, that sealed agreements uh, that had a very uh, important spiritual placement in his community, and it was it was a term that came from the Algonquin people, actually in Virginia. And it's become part of American language. Mm-hmm. It's it's a colloquial term used for a meeting sometime. Mm-hmm. When you say we're going to have a powwow, yeah. sometimes you're just saying a meeting. Mm-hmm. But it was a specific individual that would come in and seal the deal uh, when they were doing some negotiations very early on, probably in the uh, 16 or early 1700s in Virginia. Mm-hmm. It like the term moccasin, comes from those particular people that uh, met the British people mm-hmm. in Jamestown settlement, basically. But, of course, the, the term is being used contemporarily as an intertribal gathering. And it's a little different than the traditional ceremonies that happen uh, for the various Native groups in their own context. You know, the winter ceremonies or the parched corn or green corn festival, but interestingly enough, because it is an intertribal gathering that began after the Indian removal and was set for an intertribal kind of grouping, it has generated and found its way to be celebrated during the same seasons as some of those ancient festivals like the parched corn or or the green corn celebration. So you'll find powwows generally offered uh, in the fall, during harvest time, or in the spring, uh, and sometimes throughout the summer. The powwow is only about 100 years old, so it's a brand new culture because we're not a stagnant people. Mm -hmm. We're very fluid. Mm -hmm. It is an intertribal powwow culture that's been developed throughout all of the nation's Uh, that are Native American or indigenous to the Western Hemisphere. So there is a whole powwow culture and a whole template of what we call dances that are characteristic of a powwow. So you have men's traditional or jingle dress or uh, women's cloth or grass dancers. Uh, So we have categories of dance. When you're talking about traditional dancing coming down through, in this case, literally millennia, how describe the the stomp dancing for our listeners, if you would. 
The stomp dance is a very ancient dance. It predates, of course, the powwow. It's something that was done in many of the southeastern cultures that are all descendants of the Mississippian complex in an anthropological sense. It's like follow the leader. Uh, There's a a call and response to it. Uh, It is divided up with men and women stomping. Uh, There's only rattles are used, so there's no drumming uh, used during a stomp dance. And you create a, a, a one line, sort of follow the leader, but it takes on many different forms. Sometimes it's serpentine patterned, like the mounds here in the state of South Carolina. Sometimes it is uh, curving through crowds of people. Uh, quite often in a, a ceremonial sense, it, were, it was used as a prayer celebration throughout an evening. And so it's called a trance dance in an ancient context where you would circle and circle and circle and circle. And there's one great story among the Cherokee about three or four boys that were out playing and their parents were looking for them, of course, to come in for supper. And the boys kept dancing and kept playing with each other in a circular formation. And they kept dancing around and around so much that their feet lifted off the ground and they started uh, levitating toward the sky. And one mother came running out of her longhouse, and she, of course, was calling her son to dinner, and she went to grab him. And as she grabbed him, she grabbed his leg to bring him back down to the ground. And all the other boys went continuing to dance and elevating all the way up. And so we have seven stars in the sky that represent that particular dance, which was a stomp dance. They were circling and circling. And so the stomp dance has a lot of spiritual and ancient context, but we do it as performance to celebrate each other. And, of course, it's like follow the leader. But there's a call and response to so the, the leader of the stomp dance who holds a rattle. He calls back to the far end of the, the, the line. And, and that rattle is made from a gourd. It's made from a gourd. Um, mine is made from a gourd. Uh, mine was given to me by Walker Calhoun, who was a beloved man of the uh, Eastern Band Cherokee at Kuala Boundary. But often it could be made from a horn. Uh, it could be made from a tin can. When we got to be very much contemporary people, uh, women quite often get turtle shells, and they lace their legs with turtle shell rattles, and their rattles are on their legs as they stomp. It's uniquely done in different communities, different ways. Okay. Sadler, let's let's get back to the exhibit at McKissick, Traditions, Change, and Celebration, Native American Artists of the Southeast. Let's describe some of the objects and how you have put them in a cultural context. Okay. Well, first, Will and I worked to um, really identify... Uh, what we thought of as being key artists throughout the region. Talking primarily about contemporary artists now. Contemporary artists, yeah. Uh, Actually, there are no what you would call historical objects in the exhibition. They're all uh, the work of contemporary artists Uh, from Alabama, Florida, uh, North Carolina, Virginia. Uh, One thing I like about this exhibit is that we really focus on how a lot of these artists either came or took on leadership roles uh, either after their artistic work or some before. But so several of the artists we feature are chiefs of their tribe or their tribal administrators. Just about all of them have, have taken on some form of leadership role within their community. And I found that to be pretty important, pretty fascinating. Um, and a lot of these artists aren't restricted by geography. One of the key pieces in the exhibit is a frontier coat made by a Choctaw artist who lives in Idaho. Art, now describe a frontier coat. Well, Roger Ammerman's the artist's name, and he, he describes it as it's a, it's a coat that come in many different variations. It's not ordinary. It's not uh, uh, run-of-the-mill. It's a very ceremonial. It's a leather coat, and it has uh, remarkable beadwork. It's very colorful, very visually Stunning. Art. Is it a maxi coat? Um, is it a 
sport coat? How, you know, size is it long? I would describe it as a sport coat. Sport it, coat. it goes to the waist, but it has a really ornate cape that gets sewn or attached to the the coat itself. So it has a large. By cape, I don't mean a waist-length cape, but a cape that come it covers the shoulders. Okay. Uh, very practical roots, but very ornamental now, and very used, as Roger says, worn with pride and very ceremonial uh, and special occasions. So while it has roots and a very practical coat that was made of leather that had a possibly a cloth lining to wear out on the plains or wherever you might be to keep you warm. It's a very warm jacket, very thick. Uh, now it's it's taken on more of a ceremonial role. Okay. Our styles of dress changed after contact. And uh, uh, the frontier at one time, of course, was the upcountry of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, this jacket is coming from the Choctaw people specifically. So all of the symbology and all the beadwork and all of the insignia on it talks about their ancient culture, the Choctaw specifically. But many of the tribes wore frontier jackets during the 17 and 1800s because our dressing styles changed with contact. And we began to put on those kinds of clothes that had that cape of the hunter on the frontier that you'll see in everything from uh, watching Daniel Boone, Mm -hmm. uh, just like any other. So we would take on a lot of uh, the clothing styles of the Europeans, but we would always make it our own. This particular jacket is a leather version of it that is fully beaded or or, uh, uh, beaded applique onto it that basically tells a Choctaw story at the time of contact, but more importantly, it's a brand new fashion statement for those that wear Indian clothing or regalia or attire because it is regal. It's not your everyday wear. Mm-hmm. It's it's certainly something that is uh, what we would call regalia. Okay. All right, Doug. Well, well if I may, uh, moving on from what Will and Sadler are talking about, we're talking about this uh, this issue of contact and what that does to for tra- traditions. And this exhibit is on traditions and change. And one of my favorite parts of the exhibit will be a concert that we're going to have with an artist named Pura Fay. And Pura Fay is a Tuscarora blues and jazz artist who is from the Durham, North Carolina area. And so talking about contact... Uh, she tries to add to the narrative around blues, which is a music in, here in the southeast, to alter that narrative to say that Native Americans were a part of the formation of the blues. And uh, she's a performer who is the right-hand lady of Taj Mahal. Uh, she's performed all over the world, and she's going to be performing at the Booker T. Washington Auditorium in April of 2015 with us. Um, a part of that program will be another group group from the Pembroke area of North Carolina called Darkwater Rising, and their lead singer is Charlie Lowry. And another issue of contact here is Charlie was actually a finalist on American Idol some years ago mm-hmm. and has now has her own band, and they're going to be performing on at that concert as well. Okay. And, and I was thinking about change upon contact because when you had a collision of cultures, for example, the pottery tradition began to be replaced in South Carolina very early on in, in the 18th century with copper and iron pots, the use of mirrors and glass and and that kind of thing. Mooney bemoans what he called the decline of Native traditions because they had incorporated other materials and, and what have you. And you talked about that coat. The earliest descriptions you have of that kind of coat were frequently made of feathers. We do have feathered capes, um, specifically among the Cherokee, and uh, there's a revival um, movement to uh, begin wearing those again for our young ladies. But yes, the the cape, a lot of the things are, are, we're revisiting in a new way. Uh, Of course, all of the beadwork that is, uh, that Native Americans are characteristically known for, a lot of those began with the use of glass beads 
or Czechoslovakian beads or beads that were coming from Europe, even though our ancient tradition said that we would take seeds or we would take stones or we would take shells mm-hmm. and we would use the, use them in the same manner. On this particular exhibit, we do have a wampum belt. And a wampum belt is beads, but they're made from shells, purple shells. And, of course, they tell a story unto themselves because they are pictographs on the belt that tell uh, either a story or an agreement or or some of our history, almost like a book or writing, so that um, we we will always, as we continue to revive and and continue to to be a part of uh, the living, mm-hmm. take on and reinterpret ourselves and utilize the things that are at hand for us. All right, you have a wampum belt in the exhibit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now again, a term that was used in westerns and what have you. When you use the term wampum today, what are they talking about? Well, have you ever heard the term that you're shelling out a lot of money for something? Yeah. That comes from wampum. Wampum was considered money. It was a trade item that was hard to harvest. And uh, once it uh, was polished and or made into beads, or, or, or it was used as money. And so wampum was a very expensive piece, but it was also a very important piece in the trade patterns of the 1700s. And the Native Americans ended up using it. All of the Iroquois um, uh, utilized wampum uh, because we did a lot of fishing and, and, and harvested those kinds of shells. But the Iroquois in particular created wampum belts that were basically stories or they were Uh, archives, or they were legal paperwork, or they told stories and or had pictographs or had hieroglyphic kind of symbols on them that basically was a historical record. Uh, So that's what's unique and very important about the wampum to to not only the, the southern Iroquois, but the northern Iroquois. So when Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson uh, went and visited the Iroquois and got inspired by the fact that there were six nations joining together to protect each other in the Iroquois Confederacy. And they came out of there and and and, and scripted the Albany Plan. And they, they you know, Jim, Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying, if these mere savages, he said, can can work together to protect each other, then certainly the 13 colonies can do so. And the wampum belt was utilized in all those negotiations and meetings as an archive, as actually the paperwork. Sadler, back to the exhibit at McKissick, what are some of the other objects that you've got on display? Well, something we haven't talked much about is the textile tradition that, um, especially in a contemporary context, is very rich within Native American communities. So we have several Examples of quilts. Actually, Will's mother has a quilt in the exhibition. Okay, so we're talking about quilts. That's actually a European mm-hmm. item that's been adopted. We know about, we've dealt with African-American quilts before. Mm-hmm. Great exhibit at McKissick. Uh, Lexington Academy Museum has got an incredible collection mm-hmm. of basically German-influenced mm-hmm. quilts. So how does the Native American quilting tradition differ? Design, materials. Okay, are, how are the materials different? The particular quilt that's going to be on the exhibit is accented with beadwork. Okay. It was a commissioned piece that was asked to be made specifically for this exhibit to celebrate the, the tribes that are state-recognized in the state of South Carolina. So what you'll find in the panels of each of the quilt will be the symbols that represent the tribal groups that are state-recognized here. So you'll find uh, their actual symbology uh, done in applique and accented with beadwork celebrating South Carolina. All right, that is a celebratory piece for this, but if your your mother were making a quilt, is there a particular pattern or design that's associated with contemporary Native Americans in terms of quilting? The star quilt is one that's very characteristically in all of the Native American cultures 
Uh, but it was something, of course, that came about at a certain time post-reservation policy for the federal government. And a, a lot of it was inspired by European contact and more specifically varying churches that came in uh, to be missionaries to Native American people where we began sitting down at that era like other people of that era and began quilting traditions. So that is always, there's always a continual dialogue between the dominant culture and our culture. And we end up making it our own. So the type of uh, materials that are used quite often you'll find will be calico because those were the kind of cloth and kind of textiles and materials that were afforded to us. Or you'll find the use of trade cloth utilized in some of our things. From the upcountry of South Carolina, where the Cherokees were, you know, our last treaty was 1816 in Oconee County. And not too long after that, my great-grandmother was born. So you'll find the, the quilts that she made were very characteristic of the upcountry. You'll find the wedding ring quilt. You'll find the crazy quilt that you'll find among the other cultures of the upcountry. You'll find the log cabin design mm -hmm. of how you patch or piece those pieces together. One thing that's very unique about the Cherokees is we have a rag quilting expression that's basically a lot of different scraps that are knotted together to create the actual uh, fabric that is then, a, then sewn together to create a quilt. Okay, so that that makes it very different from the crazy quilt, which is just the little pieces sewn together and the flat. This is this is got a as you say knots. Knots. Now you're talking about contact and religion, and one of the things that in working on Episcopal Church history in South Carolina, particularly in 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 Columbia, the Episcopal Church had in the pre Civil War year it had a huge mission to the Indians in Minnesota and and the Dakotas. And Trinity Cathedral here in Columbia, then Trinity Church, was sending fairly large sums of money in support of that Indian mission in the years prior to the Civil War. It was quite an eye-opener when I was going through records, and, and they're very specific that they're giving this to, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, Father So-and-So's mission in Minnesota. And some of the first Native American clergy in a European denomination, came from that mission. Mm -hmm. So I mean, they were Ojibwe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course, we still had that going on here in South Carolina. We have uh, the United Methodists and the Lutheran have a very large uh, concentration and, and concerted effort of missionary work here in North and South Carolina specifically. So there is still an effort uh, to reach out, and of course. Many of the Native American people knew of that central figure mm -hmm. and adopted those varying dominant culture religions mm -hmm. and do it in their own way. Mm -hmm. And so this exhibit will celebrate some of those traditions as well, well where you'll find very, very popular uh, hymns sung in our language. So you'll find Amazing Grace sung in the Cherokee language, or you'll find a lot of the different uh, hymns that are very familiar to all of Christianity, sung our way. And, and that's these rec recordings are part of the exhibit? Mm -hmm. and, right. and as well as a part of the public program series related with religion, we're going to be having a talk called uh, How Does the Earth Speak to Us? And this is something we're doing with the Interfaith Partners of South Carolina, where we're going to look at objects in the museum and talk about the environment, uh, the earth and uh, religion, and then talk about how this goes across denominations. So we're working with a, a pagan representative, a Christian representative, a Hindu rep representative, and then uh, a Jewish representative as well to have, just have a dialogue about the relationship between these things in the exhibit, religion, and the environment. When is that going to be done? That's going to be January 22nd. Okay. Now, in terms of missionary work, I guess probably the most noted historically was the Church of Latter-day Saints with work with the Catawbas and a great many contemporary Catawbas are Mormons, uh, which of course has to do with the Mormon belief in the lost 
Native Americans being one of the lost tribes. And on their reservation in uh, York County is the Latter-day Saint Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course, uh, many of the contemporary Catawbas are, are still Mormon. And then their their brothers, the Western Catawbas, are out there uh, at the seat of uh, Mormon culture in Utah. Well, I like the way you, you keep mentioning the relationship between Native Americans here and other parts of the country, because most folks don't understand that. You, you mentioned the Shawnee. People probably don't realize that Savannah, as in Savannah River, is a corruption of Shawnee. I mean, that's kin to the, the folks there on the Great Plains. That's right. Well, interestingly enough, you know, a lot of the southeastern Suwans mm. tell the story of how they migrated from the east out to the plains because they had premonitions and had visions that newcomers were coming. And so they were trying to get out while the getting was good. <laughs> and they left early. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are all interconnected. You know, that human family mm-hmm. is something that I think we in Native culture knew all along. And so we weren't surprised by a lot of uh, the things that were brought to us by Europeans. Uh, and that's why I believe that we were easily able to adopt some of those uh, religious practices mm-hmm. and not go against our own uh, cultural and uh, practices or heritage. And we were able to blend them and continue to evolve and continue to express ourselves not only as Native people but as contemporary pe- people in all of the different eras. Speaking contemporarily, we've already mentioned that the Catawbas are the only federally recognized tribe in South Carolina. South Carolina, as a state government, has recognized how many different tribes? Thirteen. Thirteen. And without making it a laundry list, just briefly go over who they are. Uh, we have uh, quite a few. We have the Edisto Natchez Cuso of Ridgeville. We have the Wasmasaw tribe of Barnertown. Uh, we have the Santee Indian of uh, the White Oak Indian community in Holly Hill. We have, of course, the Cherokees, the great Cherokees, right? The ones that were still left here that did not go on the removal. We have uh, a small group of uh, Chickasaws, Chabotlava Chickasaws. We have the uh, Chiraws of Sumter. Mm-hmm. We have, of course, the Catawba mm-hmm. that are federally recognized and state recognized. Uh, so we have quite a few in this state. All right. Sadler, when you were putting together this exhibit, Traditions, Change, and Celebration, Native Artists of the Southeast, anything surprise you as you put it together? I think just the great variety that that I found and not only the type of artistic traditions that are represented, but the, the variety within these individual traditions, whether it be beadwork or pottery or textiles, uh, we didn't mention finger weaving when we were talking about textiles, but that's a very unique. All right, now let's um, let's describe that. I, I'm not familiar with finger weaving. Well, Will does it personally, so he could probably give you a real great description of uh, finger weaving and the roots of finger weaving. You know, we had cloth before Europeans came. We had domesticated cotton, and we were doing weaving of a lot of different kinds of materials. Some of it were uh, sweet grass or reeds. Uh, some of it was like plant material. Mm-hmm. Um, and finger weaving is the way we do uh, woven patterns and making cloth here in the southeast. We don't use a loom, so we don't have an apparatus. We actually tie knots, very similar to a macrame or a, in the contemporary light, but it's all done with your hands. All right, and, and what kind of objects result from this saddler? Well, several of the pieces we have in the exhibit are, are sashes is what I would describe them. And uh, I don't want to say pocketbook, but I guess I would say pocketbook. Pouch. <laughs> yeah. So very practical type of objects, but they have uh, quite an aesthetic value as well or uh, aesthetic properties to them as well. All right. And, and this is fairly common throughout the Southeast. It's not just your Southern Iroquois tradition. All Native people had weaving traditions. How they used them would be uh, 
very specific to their context, to their culture, to their geographic region, mm -hmm. so that some people would, of course, weave mats to sleep on. They would weave baskets, uh, clothing. Mm -hmm. They would uh, take those same kinds of skills and create their thatch roof for the Chickees of the Seminole people. Mm -hmm. They would take those same kinds of knotting traditions and weaving traditions using a natural substance and, you know, do all those kinds of things. And we're, we're going to have a facsimile of a Chickee in this exhibit. Now, Chickee is a structure. Is a structure. It's a Seminole house. Okay. Doug, you've seen the exhibit. I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite item in the exhibit? If somebody had to have a quick duck in, what is one thing you would say that they must see? Well, I, I mentioned the, the crown earlier, but I would also say that Pura Fay's lap guitar is pretty awesome as well. This is a six-string guitar uh, that she um, she places on her lap and plays with a, uh, uh, you, what do you call it, a slide in her left hand and then picks with her right hand, and then she sings on top of it. And uh, it's uh, being interested in music, the fact that we have her instrument there is just amazing. All right, now, very quickly on language. Will, did you grow up in a household speaking Cherokee? No, I didn't, because um, the federal government outlawed the use of native language at a certain time in history, and it affected my grandmother's generation. And that's the same generation that they went in and took children from their home communities and took them to boarding schools and uh, they were victims of corporal punishment if they utilized their language. So there was a, 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 an attempt to remove our native language. I am a product of uh, the post-1975 federal policy that allowed us to utilize monies coming from the federal government to revive our languages. So um, although my great-great-grandmother probably did speak it, my grandmother's generation was the one that was affected. And, you know, she was born 1906. That's the year uh, before uh, the Cherokee Nation was chartered in Oklahoma right after the Indian removal of 1838. That's my grandmother's generation. So a lot of the schools that were created uh, after the Civil War, the Freedmen's Bureaus, and the schools that were created to educate Natives and to take them and put them in boarding school uh, not only removed their language, but taught them some of those traditions like we were discussing, like um, quilting at those schools. Uh, Hampton Institute is one of those schools. Oberlin is one of those schools. So, Cornell was so, one of those schools. So, so right, Cornell was originally for Native Americans, but those other two you mentioned initially were for African Americans. Hampton Institute? Well, Hampton was started for both African American and Native American and at one time, they had both populations on their campus. Then it, uh, of course, uh, became a historically black college, and the federal government uh, stopped bringing Native students there. But when Booker T. Washington was there as an, uh, a resident assistant or an RA for mm -hmm. a dorm, he was the RA for a Native dorm oh, okay. at Hampton's uh, campus. So if you read the book... Uh, up from slavery, he talks about him being an RA at the Native Dorm. If you go on to Hampton's campus, you'll find a whole entire cemetery of uh, Native American headstones of some of the children that that did not survive but ended up dying while they were there at school. So some of the schools were started for both the Native American and African American communities after the Civil War. And others uh, were started by very philanthropic people in the Northeast, like Cornell or Harvard, mm -hmm. that had programs that were specifically for Native. And interestingly enough, we've gone full cycle so that many of those schools uh, once again have a Native population and a Native program. Okay. All right, gentlemen, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Uh, and... Sadler, I'm going to start with you. Any last words before we sign off today? Well, McKissick Museum just felt like this was something that this was a topic 
a uh, very important topic that we needed to to cover. You know, our mission is to tell the story of Southern life, and you can't really do that without talking about Native American culture and uh, how they're certainly, as Will said earlier, interconnected. So we felt pretty passionately about uh, bringing this program to the university community and the, the public as a whole. All right. Doug? Well, in addition to the exhibit, um, I'd also like to say the public program series offers something for everybody. There's music, there's discussion, there's things for folks young and old. Uh, so in addition to all this wonderful thi- all the wonderful things that will be in the exhibit, this will also be a, a wonderful uh, opportunity for, for anyone. Now, you have a website that we can link to Walter Edgar's Journal's website so that people can find out about it. You're on it. That's right. www.artsandsciences.sc.edu slash McKissick Museum. And Will, any last words from you? Yeah, I'd like to to say that it's been a great pleasure to to help guests curate this exhibit. And the most important message that that I think that that people uh, can take away from this exhibit this entire year is that here in the Southeast, the world is still Native. The indigenous people are still here. We were not removed. We remain here. And we are uh, very eagerly uh, celebrating what it is to be us in our context, in our region, in this Southeast, in those nine states. And that uh, we're still Native. We're still here. We're still Southeastern. And we have a lot to still offer the world. All right. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Show. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I enjoyed the conversation with Will Goins and Sadler Taylor and Doug Peach. And especially as Dr. Goins talked about changes in tradition of his family's heritage and the incorporation as cultures blended and came into contact and sometimes conflict with one another over three centuries. It's part of the story of all of us here in South Carolina. South Carolina was multicultural before there was such a term. And this exhibit, Traditions, Change, and Celebration, Native Artists of the Southeast, reflects that blending and changing of culture over time. This is Walter Redger. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's journal are their own and not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.